Hello and welcome to another edition of Doing Things Better and Doing Better Things. I um, I really enjoyed this conversation. So it's it's a it's a talk with, it's a chat to, it's a, a, a lovely forty five minutes spent in the company of um, Mike Gary. Mike is a a poet. Um, I see him every year at the Good Life Experience, which is my favourite, probably my favourite festival, actually. And, um, and he, he presents his poetry every year. I'm not going to tell you much more about that because we talk about it in the session. But the first time I saw him, he stopped me dead in my tracks with the kind of raw emotion and raw power of what he said. And... Um, Every year I rush back and every year I'm happily upset to watch him in a really weird way. Um, we talk about a lot of stuff. We're about the same age, um, similar similar background. Well, not similar backgrounds, similar experiences in our backgrounds. And um, and hopefully you can you can feel that there's a lot of affection in, in the conversation. And, you know, if you want a quick look into what, what life was like in the, in the sort of 70s and 80s in, in Manchester, you're going to get it here. If you want a, a quick look into what, what life is like as a, as a parent, as someone who is sort of slowly letting go of their kids as they go and do other things, you'll, you'll get it here. And if you want a quick look into the music scene that, that was Manchester at that point, you'll get that here as well. Um, so enjoy it. I really did. Right, so um, I'm sat in um, I'm sat in Hackney with um, Mike Gary. Mike, I met at the Good Life Experience, and he made me cry. He made me cry twice in um, in one event, which was amazing. And I go back every year, and I actually look forward now to you making me cry, Mike. Well, it's like I say all the time: the nice cries. It's a nice cry. It's a really nice cry. Yeah, and that's it. Crying's always associated with gloom and death and sadness and blah, blah, blah. Which you can actually have happy cries or um, warm cries or whatever. If I do that, fair enough. I don't know what I'm touching on people's psyches. Um, it was never a conscious thing. But it does seem to have that effect. Um, I think Kerry summed it up when I came off. And all right, I talk about some gloom elements of, of life and our existence, but I parallel it with positivity as well. Um, and Kerry said that I leave a sense of hope in people. She says, I leave, it's like you leave the tenant and you feel as if life is worth living and like it's worth the fight and it's worth going on for. And in some ways, that's, that's my anthem in lots of ways. Yeah, it can be shit at times, but someone's got it shitter than you. Always, yeah. What I loved about it, I mean, you, I mean, you, you just nailed it there, really. Um, the words, the, the ones that made me cry, the the, 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 the poem about your son, and um, and I was happy to be crying because because the words were uplifting. They were words of love. They were words of of togetherness. And from and, a bloke, yeah, which which doesn't really happen a lot. You know, what I mean, you don't have guys talking about the way they feel on the whole. That's why Mike Skinner's so successful because it's a and uh, a young guy expressing his feelings, um, being heartbroken and expressing it in in modern contemporary ways. But also, also ultimately uplifting. Yeah. Ultimately uplifting. So I've seen you every year for the last four years. 
and I, and, I, and I won't miss you, and and I love it, and and I love the bits where you where you're timetabled. I also love the fact that sometimes you just stand in the middle of an area and start doing it, and you're not, yeah. you're not timetabled. No. Why do you do that? Because um, we don't have time to practice. Seriously. That's why we do that because we don't have time to practice. And that's so that's you and and the, I'm the quartet. The, band, the, the quartet. quartet. Yeah, we do it because we don't have time to practice. So we decided one year we'd just pop up and do it, and we did it outside the book uh, bus, and then we just thought, right, let's go somewhere else and do it somewhere else now, and it turned into a um, musical walk whereby we do little bits here and there, and it just seemed to work really well, and it packs the tent out as well so people see you. It's like yeah, it's like it's like a, a try before you buy. You know? Yeah, you you create a little a little ripple before you've even gone on stage. But that's great, and, and you know they love that as well. Good Life love that as well because they know it works really well. They're a good bunch, aren't they? Yeah, they are a very good bunch. Very good bunch. Awfully, awfully, but a very good bunch. Yeah, but there's nothing wrong with awfully, awfully. It, I could do it a bit more of it in my do, life. Actually. Yeah. Do you know? Do you know what? For a long time, I was. I, it's resent. I resented people with money. Right. And breeding. Yeah. It's just jealousy. Yeah. There's, there's nothing wrong there. There's wrong. There's something wrong with it, with, with wielding it with a little bit of an arrogant stick. Yeah. They don't do that, though. They don't at They all. don't do that. They do it in the, in the best possible way. First year I was there, from the minute I arrived, Charlie walked up to me, welcomed me. Steve brought me into the shop, brought me up to the counter and said, anything this guy wants, just sort him out. Amazing. Which is just a, a lovely welcome. Isn't it? Uh, it's, it's not just that about the good life experience. It's also that constant sense that you know you're never going to have your tent robbed. <laughs> and you can lead your kids to run them off. That's it. Yeah, you know, know. It's, it, there's just a safety to it. And it's it's like I say, it's a sort of good life run by the sort of people who say hello on walks. <laughs> when you're walking, someone yeah. hello. No, I, I, I have to say, I divide people now into those that say a cheery hello and those that ignore me. And it's got beyond being irritated by the ones that don't say anything. And I give them a little bit of a, under my breath, for fuck's sake, Jim. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah or, yeah. hello, or maybe not, or good yeah. day, or obviously yeah. not for you, you know? I've had don't call me mate. I use the term mate a lot. Don't call me mate. Don't call me love. Really? Yeah, I've had that a few times, but I immediately just come back with, but I'm your mate. That's you cool. might be mine, but I'm yours. I love that. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a minute because there's, there's a little bit of Velcro there for me. Um, you live in Hackney now. You live in a really cool part of town. It's up and come. It's amazing. How, how does this compare to, to your childhood? What did, what, what, what did your childhood sound like, Mike? The reason why I live in Hackney here is because this is like my childhood. All right, there's some £2 million houses around me. But walk down the bottom of the street, you still get the guy kicking off at the guy in the shop because he's charged him five pence extra. You still get the mad guy walking down the street. You still get the old woman got a mass at half nine on a Saturday morning, on every morning at St. Jude's. You still get a lot of mental health. You still get a lot of poverty. You still get a lot of begging. You still get all these things that I've grown up with in lots of ways. Um, but wrapped up in a bit of gentrification. It's funny, you said you hated the rich and stuff like that. I, I've never hated the rich, I just used to laugh at them. Um, I hated gentrification until I was sat in um, London Fields Lido last year with the sun purring down, just being surrounded by lovely people. And I thought, yeah, so I'll have a bit of this gentrification. It's making this, <laughs> making this bit better. Yeah. Um, so it's very similar, it reminds me of Rush Home. 
And is that is that because it's got a I mean, the word's overused, but community, um, a sense of place, a sense of a purpose, what, what is it? I think it is that. I think the people are decent people who've grown up in, work, in a working-class area and they've done good. It's great, there's a black guy around the corner here eh, who, I see him all the time, give him the little nod, um, 7A, Windrush. He, I saw his house slowly being cleared by his son. And, like... Think about it. You just told me a story about a house in Clerkenwell for 52 grand. He probably bought that gaff for £25,000 yeah. in 1978. Probably brought up his family there. Probably did all that. Probably lost his wife, blah, blah, blah. He's going back to Jamaica with two million quid. I mean, good on him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, totally. Good on him. Back totally. It's, it's what I want. Um, I love this area. It's dead arty as well. I've got a cinema, cinema at the bottom of the road, Castle Cinema. Um, I've got the coolest French shop where you've just been for croissants. I've got the co-op one of what I feel socialist. Um, I've got the parks down the road. I've got the parks down the road. I've got Acne Marshes there. I can get on my bike. I can cycle to Edmonton, Enfield, um, all the way down the marshes. I'm living in the middle of London, but the countryside is a stone's throw away. I'm with a big dog like mine as he yawns. I, I need space. He is big. He is big. Massive poos. <laughs> Enormous poos. Do you have to have two bags? No, I'm good at collecting and crushing it in the within the bag and picking up a double one. I'm also very tight. He also pisses reservoirs. <laughs> Literally, well, that's domination now. He's trying to get down. Sorry. Sorry. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's good living. I love living around here. Also, I'm really lucky. Brother lives around the corner. Does he? Three daughters live round the corner now. One of them two days a week, but the other two are there. Um, do you know what? It's like bringing home back down south, literally. So, so that, I mean, the family word, I watched your TED talk and um, it's really moving, actually. Lots of ways, and I want to go back to a bit of that later. But family is clearly a massive, massive importance to you it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's almost like, it's the thing that oozes most out of your work for me that's what I I guess people hear different things in your yep. work but for me I hear family and when in your TED talk I heard your mum obviously and then here I've, I've, I've met I've, you know met your family I can just feel the presence of them what was that like growing up what did what did it feel like because you were one of five six six grew up in Madhouse to be quite honest um, it was chaos um, I do a lot in education now and I focus a lot on dysfunction. I talk to the kids a lot about dysfunctional households we grow up in because a lot of kids don't want to admit that their house is mad. They don't want to admit that and you don't want other people to know that but by bringing up dysfunction, describing what it was like growing up, I remember having a fight over a sock once because it was only three socks and four feet. And I say that to the kids and I can see them looking round and then I'll say, it's not as bad with undies though, is it? Because no one can see. Like, I went to school in no undies because I didn't have any undies. I'm not making myself out to be poor here in any way. I'm just talking about the dysfunction of it all. The chaos, you know what I mean? Six people. Think about my parents. First generation Irish coming over from literally the back end of nowhere. Farmers, villagers. um, And they brought their parenting skills to an house of six kids. They were both alcoholic. My mum was dry. My dad couldn't be arsed being dry. My dad had a stroke when I was five. 
physically paralysed. So we were caring. I was caring for my dad from about. We were all caring for my dad from about six years old. I'm talking changing clothes. I'm it talking. Should have been the other way round. Yeah, of course. But this this is the dysfunction of life. Um, um, it was chaos. It was absolute chaos. Very little money. It was like school trips. They'd give you the letter. I won't, I'm not bringing that home to embarrass me, man. Go to France skiing. He taking the piss. I wouldn't. I wouldn't put me man through that. Straight in the bed. Um, you become self subsistent. Self subsistent at about thirteen, fourteen. I had a job at fourteen, twenty hours a week, in an um, sweatshop, local sweatshop. So I was working twenty hours a week and got to school. I was on forty p an hour. What were you making? Buttoners, putting buttons on garments, making jeans on those yeah. big cutters and and stuff like that. Um, but you have to do that because financially at 14, when you want to go out with girls and stuff like that, you can't ask your mum for the money because you, you know she hasn't got it. So you just find other ways of doing it. I grew up around city's ground, so I used to mine cars, I used to deliver papers. There was a guy who'd come out on a Sunday night and would deliver the pink. I'd be walking around social clubs and pubs at 14 going pink, pink, and the old guy go, yeah, give us a pink. You know what the pink is? Yeah, yeah. The newspaper for the sports, paper, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, there was also a clear division within our house whereby it was the older ones Trisha Shea Teresa and then it was the three lads at the bottom Mike, Chris, Ewey and it was pretty separate in terms of that so we were a band on our own we were the musketeers on our own and the others were all grown up and seemed big but we were fucking mental things we just used to get up to we were terrorised and we were feral in the true sense of the word feral whereby you were thrown out in the morning and when you came back you came back um Elbow do it with lippy kids. They talk about lippy kids. We were lippy kids. You know what I mean? We were, we were that kid. That's how we grew up. Hustling, getting through, play schemes, um, church, strict Catholics in our house. My mum was virtually a nun. Um, you still practice? Yeah, St. Jude's around the corner. Great mass, great church. Um, well, it's like a long poem, isn't it? Well, I, I was going to come back to this. Yeah, it's a massive influence. Come back to it. So, yeah, I grew up in that sort of environment. Uh, shit comprehensive school. Um, I said that recently at an inset, though. I said, I was up, I walked up to the mic and I thought, I'm not prepared for this. I'm not fucking prepared for this. And I got to the mic and my opening line was, I had the shittest education money could buy. But then I stopped and said, no, actually, I'm, I'm changing my opinion while stood here because... On Friday afternoons, we used to sit down and go, Mr. Brewer, tell us about what it was like in the Navy. And Mr. Brewer would go, I can't, we've got to get through our family and other animals. It was great. I was 15, you know. And we'd sit there like that and listen to Brewer's hour of travelling around the world and getting off with prostitutes and blah, blah, blah. That can't happen in education anymore. And that's why I don't think I did have the worst education anymore. I think the kids at the moment are getting the worst education. I, I agree. We had, a, we had a Mr. Brewer. He was called Mr. Cook, and he was in the army, and a history teacher. And you just knew, if you, could, if you asked him the right question, tell, tell how did Agincourt play out again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's not, on the, it's, it's not what we're supposed to be studying today, but it's fascinating. Yeah. And, and, and we're actually, you know, this is You story. were fascinated. This is story, and it's myth and fable. Most importantly, Mike, it's passion. Exactly. That's what I say about the good life all the time. I say that about the good life all the time. I remember stumbling into a talk once, half sobered up, and this guy sat there for an hour and told me about the declining hair population in 
North Wales, most interesting talk I've heard in years. <laughs> because the guy was passionate about it, the guy cared about it. And you get someone to talk about something they care about effectively, I'll listen all day, me. I agree. No, I agree entirely. It's funny, you know, I had a, I had a, I had a Twitter spat a few years ago now with someone about education. I just said, look, we've lost, we've lost the ability to be creative in how we deliver it. And it's not the teacher's fault. And therefore, we're educating for all the wrong reasons. And this guy, one of my mates, laid into me. But I was getting on a plane to fly to Holland for a, a, a gig. So I turned my phone off, turned it back on when I landed. Fucking hell, I've been... Pillory of I, Yeah, he, absolutely. And, and I sat and thought about it. And I thought, what, what button am I pressing here? Well, the last experience he had of, private, of state education was when he left school. All of his kids had been privately educated. He had no idea what state state education was in at all. He had no idea what whatsoever. We've all been privately educated, which is a different system. I've educated my kids state, private, and homeschooled. All I've not got a problem with someone who chooses to do that. Right? Call by me, but don't comment on state education when you haven't touched it yeah. since 1984. Yeah. And that and that's and that was the reality. Yeah. So what what, what music did you listen to? Growing up, you're, you're, it's one of the most musical cities on the planet is Manchester. So my musical education was done by Arshay, big brother, eldest. Um, you were honoured if he invited you into his room to look at his albums. Yeah. But I was once invited into his room to look at his albums, sat down, opened the gate fold and it was Elton John's Madman Across the Water, first thing I'd ever heard sort of like that yeah. had an effect on me. Massive Elton John fan. I'm a massive Elton John fan. I love the guy, met him. Um, seen his kids at school in Windsor. Um, I just, I just, I was just obsessed with him. And then we'd go on to Bower, then we'd go on uh, whoever, whoever else, Marvin Gaye. And I had my sisters next door who were doing all the Motown, doing all the Northern Soul, Northern Soul and all that. So I'd get this this sway of influence. And I remember our, our Shay coming back. One night we were all in bed, she comes into the room and starts fighting with us and he says, I've just been to see a punk band called The Stranglers and this was about 77. Um, punk was really important for me, really important for me because I was a trampy, uncool kid in scruffy clothes one day and the next day I was just a punk. I was just a punk. I was what a punk was in every possible way. I had the uniform unintentionally because the clothes I was wearing, but most importantly, I had an attitude. I had the punk attitude of do it yourself. Dave Haslam makes a really good point in his book about Manchester music where he talks about the punk in London and down south being a fashion thing. Yeah. It was never a fashion thing up north. So you'd have kids in flyers at punk gigs. Yeah. There was no style associated with it. Because what the North brought was the true attitude of punk, of doing it yourself. Like I was talking to you a minute ago about not having money. So I had to fucking find the money. Yeah. I had to, so you just do it yourself. And it's a thing I've carried through my life. Um, then the music scene started to explode in Manchester because of the likes of Tony Wilson. So I would see the damned at the Russell Club at 15, sneaking in with me. Don't know who they are. I'm just following the lads and going yeah. in and seeing this band. Saw the Buzzcocks on a regular basis. Um, because we love the Buzzcocks and they were Manchester. And it's funny, I was talking about this recently. I never liked The Clash, but I know every single song of The Clash. And the thing is, I do like The Clash, but I wasn't allowed to like The Clash because they were Courtney's. And I had to like Northern Punks. Really? Yeah, I had to like Northern Punk bands. They took priority. Um, and if you liked a bit of the Southern 
band you were seen as a bit of a weirdo. But the punk thing was massive for me, really important. Um, and then slowly, you, I, I loved Prefab Sprout. I Great thought band. I thought they were the greatest. I think they were the greatest band. Paddy's unbelievable. Paddy's. I had a chance to meet Paddy at a party recently, and I refused to go to the party purely because I don't ever <laughs> want to meet that man. Um, because I hold him with such, such honour um, and such value in my life that to meet him would just fuck it all up, probably. Um, what other stuff? Um, started playing in bands, then realised you have to carry material around, you have to carry amps and stuff like that. Um, and I was writing loads, but decided to sack it all off and focus on the poetry so that I all I had to carry was a pencil. Uh, but the music was always a really big influence and I always grew up around bands and so I was, I was never in the Hacienda scene because I always liked to take a step away from clicks. Uh, but my brother worked downstairs at the Gay Trader so we'd get in free and um, so at 15 we were smoking weed downstairs in the Gay Trader whilst Madonna was on upstairs and couldn't be bothered going upstairs to watch her. I'd do the same again today. I'd stay downstairs with my mate, smoking weed, um, strong weed, now, and getting yeah. free beer from behind the from behind the counter in most cases. But like, I, you know, one of the one of the abiding questions I've got for you that has been bubbling since I first saw you is, how did you end up not being the lead singer of a band? Because um, you only need a pencil, man, and an attitude. Um, how did he end up? Do you need to get it? No. How did he end up not being a lead singer in a band? Um, that's a poet, man. It's born in you. I it think. Sounds Paddy. Mm, he's not. He's a lyricist. It's different. Oh, tell me the difference. This, I love this. What's the difference? Difficult one. Um, difference between a lyricist and a poet is is a very thin line. But ultimately, it's about target audience for me. Um, and about being in a band and things like you, you're approaching things with a t from a totally different direction. Um, you write differently. Your style and delivery is a lot more melodic. Um, a lot more um, as less aware of the importance of individual words as opposed to the sentence. Yeah, that's right. Um, and less time. It's about time poetry. It's about spending time considering stuff. Uh, so there's less time as a lyricist, more I think time so, as a poet. Yeah. Less time on each individual word as a poet, yeah. more time as a lyricist. Other way around. Other way more around. time as a poet. Yeah, less on the lyrics. Yeah, you're just looking a lot closer at things because ultimately it's a poem and it stands alone. Whereas the, a lyric, you've got four of your mates behind you. Yeah. Um, so it, it difference it. It's all about delivery as well, isn't it? Where's it coming from? When's it coming? How's it coming? Was Smith's a, was Smith, was Morrissey a poet or a lyricist? I mean, I know he's a he's a different man now. So Morrissey used to come around my house. On a regular That's basis. A great title for a book. Morris used to come around my house on a regular basis and we shared poems. You've had the, the same age as Morris. No, he's got four or five years on me. Has he? Um, we shared poems. Me um, mum... See, it's weird because he's about five years older than me, Morrissey. So my mum was always a bit confused why this older bloke was interested in this 17-year-old pretty blonde <laughs> boy with blue eyes, six foot tall and tanned. Um, so she was very weary of him. Um, 
And I remember him coming out of our house once and saying, yes, I've just come back from America, Mrs. Gary. <laughs> and my mum turned around and said, oh, really? Did you go to Disneyland? <laughs> now, we don't realise as kids that our parents take the piss, because they're our parents, but what she was taking the piss out of him, you know, because he's so gloomy and stuff. Did you go to Disneyland? Smith's massive influence on me. I lived with Morrissey's dad for a bit. So Morrissey was round all the time. Yeah. Um, he used to come and write on our walls. How, how did you get to live with Morris's dad? I worked. Remember, started hustling. Did you yeah. get take jobs? Blah blah blah. I worked at a hospital in Wally Rounds, and his dad was the night porter. And I'd chat with him. And he was a genuinely interesting bloke from Dublin. And he turned around to me and he goes, "Will you have a word with my fella?" And I'm like, "Why? What's wrong?" He goes, "He's fucking weird. Like you sits in his room reading all the time." So I said, yeah, of course. So Morrissey came down, and I had a word with Morrissey. <laughs> That's the best story ever. Then the Smiths happened. It's my fault. <laughs> it was my word. You were the starting gun. The <laughs> it was my word. I knew Johnny Marr worked in Stolen from Ivers with him. You were, I fucking went to that. In Manchester? Yeah. I, I shopped in that store. Went to, worked with Johnny from Stolen from Ivers. Never forget my first day there. He was ripping the piss out of me. Ripping the piss out of me, that was Johnny Marr, um, for a number of reasons. During the interview, I was interviewed at the counter by Gary, I'll never forget it. And Johnny Marr kept chipping in, chipping in, chipping in, and Gary just turned around to him, Fuck off and go and sweep the floor, will you? <laughs> so, during this interview, I saw Johnny Marr. <laughs> Johnny Marr. I bet he swept it in, in some kind of gorgeous rhythm, didn't he? He did, he did. But Johnny used to turn around to people and say, It don't fucking matter about this job anyway, I've got the greatest band in the world. I've got the greatest band in the world. So he became known at Stone from Ivers, Johnny Marr Superstar. That's that, amazing. That, that, was that, was his his, that was his nickname, Johnny Marr Superstar. And I knew Mike Joyce really well because yeah. he worked at the local Irish club with our Chris, who pot collected. So I knew the Hawks and, uh, and his know. band before that. So I knew the Smiths really well before they were even the Smiths. Um, and when he became the Smiths, because he was so closely attached to his dad and blah, blah, blah. We were almost part of the family. We'd have tapes that no one else had. Um, and then I started to get to know Morris. Uh, then I'd go down to London and see him. And we'd meet up in Manchester. stayed with him at London. Saw him do barbarism. Begins at home for the first time in Colchester. After an interview with Janice Long at the BBC. I'm 17 years old and being dragged around oh. all these places. Did, and what did that do to your aspiration, to your ambition? How, how did that aspiration, you, man? man. That's the key. That's the key. I was a librarian for many years. My focus was children's literature. I'm a real specialist on children's literature. Well, real specialist, I'm probably not now. But I know a lot about children's literature. And I've read all the Ian Opie books. Um, I know all Michael Rosen's theories and ideas. And I've just, I just know how that works and what children's literature does to young minds and the effect it has on it. And that's why I travel to 10,000 kids a year and doing one way. And I'm just saying, fucking read! Just read! Just read things! And things happen that can't be explained what happened. And my example is always a group of 15-year-old meathead boys who call me a puff because I'm a poet. And we're sat in a room and I'll read them sad by Michael Rosen, which is about the death of his son at 15. It's an amazing poem. I've seen the kids, seen 15-year-old kids do... Can I go to the toilet? Because they're, they're upset. But I also do the tiger who came to tea. Because the tiger who came to tea... Stop tapping. The Tiger Who Came to Tea is about aspiration. It's about aspiration. I also do that. Have you been left at home? Anyone been left at home on their own? You're like parents leave you on your own at home and blah, blah, blah. And they're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
And what people fail to recognise Tiger Come to Tea is that there is a drunken tiger walking around the house. He's drank all daddy's beard, don't forget. So he's a pissed up tiger. Then he leaves. Then mum and dad come home and they're all dead nice to her. And then they decide to go out to the cafe for the tea. I didn't know you ate, you could eat outside your home. I didn't know that cafes existed. Think about it, six kids, yeah. generation, yeah, generation Irish kids. That, yeah. we have, it was glamour. It was glamour for me to imagine eating outside your aspiration. I can't aspire to something unless I know about it. I can't want a Mercedes unless I've seen a Mercedes or someone's told me about a Mercedes. Books do that. They tell you about the things that are on your immediate periphery. They tell you about things in other worlds. By reading, you develop a longing for those other things. And in terms of aspiration, the original point you were making, it, at 18, it wasn't, it wasn't particularly cool for me to talk to the lead singer of a band because I was doing it all the time or I was at the Hacienda and in yeah. the dressing rooms and chatting with him. It wasn't cool. It didn't feel particularly cool. It just felt quite normal. But my aspirations increased the more I saw that because I was seeing what comes out of situations like that. But most importantly, I was looking at an opportunity to develop what I like doing the most, either playing the band or writing poems, and recognising the fact that I can make a living out of this. I tell kids in schools, yeah, see that poem? 25 grand. And the kids look at me like that, and I went, yeah, I got paid 25 grand for that. The point is this, I'm not showing off. No, of course not. I'm saying, you can do this. That's aspiration. You can, exactly. Exactly. Or I'll even be smart and I'll go, half an ounce in Burnley. (laughs) 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 Latest top of the range Mercedes. I got paid 20 minutes, that took me. Took me 20 minutes. It's about them recognising. I was always brought to the theatre as a kid as well. Spoke spoke about being poor. My mum was a, primary school teacher at a local massively rough primary school um, but we'd go to theatre all the time and I never questioned this I never questioned years later I thought how could we afford to go to the theatre and then I realised before my mum went to work she'd clean she'd clean a woman's house in Presswich who ran the Palace Theatre in Manchester so she'd get free tickets for Swiss Family Robinson, the Mikado. I remember sitting there watching the Mikado at sort of like nine. Um, I saw, saw Max Spike Milligan about ten. So totally freaked me out. Um, I just see loads of theatre. And don't get me wrong, I think a lot of theatre is terrible. Um, but when it's good, it works really well. But another thing about theatre as a young kid is you don't have to watch the stage. You just have to look around. Yeah, and smell theatricism, it. Just feel it. Yeah. Theatricism of the environment is equally as important. Um, I was always surrounded by literature. I know that sounds daft, but even if it was the Bible or Seamus Heaney or That's Irish the best Rebel story songs. ever written. Irish Rebel songs. Um, I was always surrounded by language and words. And my parents would come home drunk with mates from the pub and stuff like that and the piano would be on and people would be singing and people would be drunk and there'd be 15 people in the house and as kids it was really exciting yeah, so the dysfunction can sometimes be actually quite a good thing and there was always a story to be told and we were always over in Ireland and you always had to have a voice and that's what was important to me to have that voice because I was a pretty insecure kid my dad had a stroke when I was five which totally messed me up years later I discovered um so I always felt as if I needed this voice, and I think that's where the, the poetry comes from. And 
the bravery of being able, you know, you, you, you've said it already, some kids call you a puff because you wrote poems. Did you have that as you were like 18, 19, when you, when you were beginning to find your, 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 your voice? Were people dismissive of it? Or, or had, had, had Cooper Clark and others... And, and actually, the, the, the intros to punk bands and, and the early New Romantic bands were poets, comedians, Henry Normal. Th- these people were, were paving the way. Did they help you or did they hinder you? Massively, because it made it, it, made it accessible, didn't it? He was there. And also, a lot of the punk stuff was spoken word. Listen to Ian Jura. He's a spoken word artist. Yeah. A lot of the punk stuff, the verbals were really important. Even if it was an introduction to a song or stuff like that, the lyrics were really important. But these people made it accessible. These people... He was normally pissed and shitted. Yeah. He was just normal. He was a normal guy, you know what I mean? But he's up there now and making Lim Lem Sisse the same. I saw Lem from a very young age on stage. Uh, in Manchester, there was a collective called... The... Uh, Buskers... And they'd put on gigs, and it'd be literally buskers who, um, later Brian Glancer, uh, Henry Normal was always yeah. there, uh, Steve Coogan was regularly there, um, all the arts, theatre, drama sorts of people were there. And I was seeing this on stage, John Thompson was always there, I was, saw him first do his Bernard Wright on character. So I was seeing the development of all these things, but you never know how big it actually is, because you're amongst it, so you just assume... That it's a local thing, but then it grew, 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 and Coogan got on Spitting Image, uh, Henry Normal started doing loads of stuff, um, Johnny Bramwell out of I Am Clute was doing stuff there, Brian Glancer was a big influence on Elbow and I Am Clue and all that stuff. So I was around it all the time, and it felt like comfortable people. Um, that, but that was your normal? That was my normal, yeah. yeah. That was pr- that was pretty much my normal. Did you yeah. have to move? Did you have to move away to realise how astonishing your normal was? Was it time or distance or? You, you don't realise how important it is, do you? You never realise how important it is until you've grown up years later and stuff like that. But it was nice I'd hang around with. I'm not name dropping, but it was nice. It was nice I was hanging around with people who they weren't, now, big, they weren't big names. No, though. exactly, exactly. Who now will would would sell out the London Palladium? I remember going to see John Hegley and Henry Normal two weeks running, two weeks apart, at the one in twelve club in Bradford, the unemployment club in Bradford, and I think I was one of four people for Henry Normal, and I think I was one of six for um, Hegley for John Hegley. Yeah, now but both of them huge names, huge talent in yeah. their own right, gone divergent ways. Interestingly, they were just normal, and you could have a chat with them afterwards, and it's a bit like Stuart Lee, you know, in, the, in his dark era. He, Selling merch afterwards, just a normal person. I met Stuart recently, he worked, does a bit of work at the University of Westminster where I'm artist in residence. Sound guy, just so down to work. Just normal. Yeah, exactly. Just normal. Exactly. So how do you stay normal? Because obviously, well, first of all, um, you've got a great picture of Bowie over there. Yeah, right? it's very special. My father-in-law, Arthur Wynn Davis, he uh, bought us that as a wedding present. That's amazing. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Unique. So, um, when did when did being a librarian? Well, there's lots to talk about. Firstly, your love of children's literature doesn't surprise me at all because because a lot of a lot of your poems feel so beautifully simplistic. Not not simple, but simplistically metered and tomboyed. And 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 I love it. And I love it when you get passionate and it becomes. You move from telling from saying a poem into delivering a chant. It it, it moves from 
poetry to football terrace almost and the audience moves with you, you lift the room really high. That technique's astonishing. When did that start? How did that start? And when did you realise that being a poet was enough and you didn't have to be a librarian as well? Or were you still both? So the librarian stuff, I went to university and dropped out really early and then came home and started having kids. And my daughter was just about to be due and I thought I'd best get a job. I spent most of my time in the library because I loved being in libraries. Um, and I saw a job come up at the library. I applied for it. I got a job as a library assistant. And it was horrible. I hated it. But then I decided, uh, I went to the personal office one day. I said, Moira, get me out of here. So she goes, we thought about doing a degree. I said, a degree in librarianship? Are you serious? Uh, and I went off and did degree, the degree in librarianship and it changed my life. In Manchester? In Manchester. So Manchester City Council, brilliant city council, gave me a day off and study time and paid for the course. So I was practising my librarian skills on the job in work during the week and I'd take them out and I'd do lots of different stuff and weird stuff and I had a really supportive boss at work and... Um, I could just do things that weren't normally done in terms of research, in terms of looking how young people work and how they operate in environments and stuff like that. And I did that for, I qualified and then I got a top job. I was running homework centres throughout Manchester. We decided to set up homework centres to take the kids away from the adults who were moaning about them all the time and get them in an environment whereby uh, education was key. Um, but to be honest, to be totally honest, they were poetry centres. I believe everything can be learned through poetry. Maths. We learn maths through poetry. Times tables. It's a rhythm. It's about the rhythm of language. Um, and I would use poetry as a fulcrum to teach everything else. My Fibonacci numbers, they're poetic. The prime numbers, they're poetic. The yeah. patterns that we see in art all come from maths. Exactly. And the patterns that we see in maths are And science. Artistic. And science totally. as well. So I did that for a bit, but then um, I, I, I just got... Um, promoted, 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 whereby you're not working with the kids anymore, you're just in meetings looking for money. Yeah. So I decided to jack, and my poetry was taking off, taking off, I was doing bits of performance, um, and I thought I sat this. So I sat with that, two kids, on my own, mortgage, and decided to become a poet. Um, in Manchester? In Manchester, time. yeah, slowly built it up, slowly built it up. Um, and then the, the, the stuff I do in schools is quite groundbreaking, because it's really challenging, and if Head teachers probably saw it, they'd probably kicked me out. No, that's not true because I had a few head teachers I've come into my class before, seen what I've been doing, and then ensured that every NQT was in the classroom with me watching yeah. what I was doing. Um, it's about validation of young people and making them feel important. It's about recognizing that, all right, she might be a scruffy girl coming in at 20 minutes late or stuff like that and she might be a bad reputation she might mess up all the kids in the class and ruin the class but she's just as valid as everyone else and if treated correctly and if treated right you can get her on your side in five minutes just that teachers don't really have time to do that they can't take the time to spend on that one kid I can, I can do it, I can compliment her I can tell she's great um, and it just works so in terms of the education stuff um, I take chances, I haven't stood at window staring out the window for ten minutes and Saying something like, I don't know, there's a whole world out there. <laughs> but, but, but and I, you know, and when you were talking, I went straight to thinking about Andrea Dunbar, um, Rita Sue and Bob too. Yeah, um, massive influence. F phenomenal talent who were in, 
If things hadn't worked out as they did, she'd have just been lost. Like, well, she was, even though she was a riot, wasn't she? She didn't have a good life, Sheila Delaney. Uh, sorry, I called her Sheila Delaney, but Sheila Delaney is another example of that. Salford girl wrote Taste of Honey. She wrote it whilst selling fags in the uh, Rialto in Salford. Um, there's all these working an, class voices. Yeah, incredible. There's always these um, these these voices that that don't come to the fore because of the obstacles of poverty and the obstacles of class and the obstacles of well, just being scared to walk into a theatre. I remember standing outside Northwest Arts, scared to go in the room, scared to go in the building because who am I to claim to be a poet growing up in my side and Fallowfield and thinking I've I've got something valid to say. Um, it's about mentors in lots of ways and about um, people who take your voice and, and say they really like it. So who, was you, who was your biggest mentor? Teachers. A couple of teachers who I worked with. Um, family members. My mum was my biggest mentor, really, because she just made, you, made it clear that you can do anything you want if you, uh, if you want it enough. But it's a series of mentors and a series of patrons. We misuse the word patronise. I like being patronised. Patronise me anytime you want. Um, but when someone puts money into you as well, or it, it validates your existence and makes you feel, well, they value me so much that they're willing to pay this, that, or the other. So your confidence just steadily grows. I'll always remember, I, I, do, I teach... I do, I'm sustainability, innovation, and I help people find their public speaking voice, I, I help, which is never finding their voice as a public speaker. It's always finding out who they, who they really are yeah. and breaking down some obstacle or, or you know, someone has stolen their voice. Mainly for women, it's mainly men who have stolen their yeah. voice. Yeah. And, and, and I help find it. And, and as part of that, I needed to find my own voice. And I'll always remember speaking at a gig in Athens. And I was good. Right? It was a good gig. I paid a grand, really happy. Gig on one day, workshop on the next. And I got sat down in the audience, and you know, you get instant feedback now. Twitter goes fucking crazy, and you're on it, and you're like, oh, people liked it. And I was acutely aware the person that followed me was just a master. Like, he was fucking amazing, a guy called Magnus Lindquist. And he just had the audience there. And I watched it and went, I've got so much to learn. Went back to my hotel room for a little cry, because I am that extrovert introvert. I have to perform and then hide. Yeah. And I, and I was chatting to my wife on the phone, um, and she said, how'd it go? I said, it was great, but fuck this guy, he's amazing. Beep beep, text comes in. Hey Mark, it's Magnus. Come and meet me in the bar, I wanna buy you a pint. So I went down to the bar, he said, you're incredible, that's amazing, you should be charging way more than a thousand pound, I wanna help you, I wanna help you find your voice. I wanna help you get to another level. And we had a great time, and he never really did do that, but, but Mike, of course he did that. Validated it by Just saying it. Yeah. Just by saying that. Yeah. So that validation, that mentorship. And then well, on your first gig, your first I'm a poet gig, because I'm guessing you you were doing performances when you were at the library. What I was doing was I was working with kids and I was reading them my, my poems and not telling them and reading other poems and wrapping my poems amongst them. You were hiding them in there? I was hiding them. And I was saying, what, what was your favourite? What did you like the most? And then we'd talk about it. And then I'd perform it to them. And they encouraged me in lots of ways. Why don't you do these slams? Why don't you do these? So I started doing slams and started winning poetry slams. Um, then I went over to America and did a bit in America. Poetry slams in America at the New Eureka Poets Cafe. And the confidence just grew and need. 
financial need help. So we did loads of voluntary stuff in school so they could see what I was like and what I did. Um, and slowly things just took off. And also I never wanted to be rich and famous, which is a really useful thing to hold on to. Um, I don't want loads of money. I've never wanted loads of money. I've always found loads of money a hassle. There's a wonderful bit in Pygmalion where he tries to offer £10 for a sale of his daughter. And he goes, no, I only want five. If I have ten, I'll start worrying about investing it. And and if you give me five, I'll go out and get pissed and have some food with my wife tonight and we'll we'll, we'll we'll have fun. And it's gone. It's just gone. I'm I'm pretty much from the, from the same background. I don't like having a lot of money. Don't particularly like being famous. Don't particularly like being surrounded by people who just want to lick me ass. Even if it is genuine ass, lucky. I'm not that comfortable with it. So not wanting to be rich and famous is a really useful thing because like the stuff I do with the quartet now, it's it's so important, but it's it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. I'm not in a race. I don't want to be famous. I don't want to be selling my ass on the internet for five minutes. You'll find one video of our quartet, um, which Bruntwood did, massive building firm in Manchester. Um, anything else, you won't find it on there because I don't want to just... So I've stuff all so, over the internet. So well, that's interesting, that is. And, and brilliant and grounding and, and inspiring. But Anthony H. Wilson, like, that was a monstrous moment for lots of things. For Manchester, for poetry, for, for punk, in my humble opinion, and for you. How, how, that, did that feel uncomfortable, the notoriety? That yeah, I like? hated it. I absolutely hated it. Um... It was so difficult for someone like me to have to deal with that shit and all the thing that went along with it because ultimately, I remember going to a meeting once and sitting there about set Anthony just before it came out, and no one in the room knew who I was. It was like, who are you? It's like I wrote it. Um, so there's a whole machine behind it that took over, and like I wasn't part of the machine, but they were using my voice and my front and blah blah blah. So it was quite difficult in a way. It was really demanding. Um, I had a stroke a month before the release. You had a stroke? I had a stroke the month before the release. Um, I split with my wife two months before the release. Um, it was probably the most chaotic, frightening and stressful time of my life, the release of St. Anna. The story behind it is incredible. If was to tell people, they would not believe it. What I went through around um, the marketing and the sales, going to America, um, just the whole thing. It wasn't a nice experience for me, and I didn't enjoy the experience. Um, I love the poem, though. I think it's a really good poem. It's a love letter. I think what Joe Dadell did was incredible music-wise. Um, but yeah, around all the sanity stuff, the press stuff, I wasn't particularly comfortable with it and I wasn't very well during it. So I was doing these live performances two weeks after coming out of stroke clinic. Um, yeah, doing festivals. I remember got a latitude and sort of like feeling like I was going to die. I remember doing latitude and feeling like I was going to die. Not being able to stand up on my own two feet for more than 25 minutes before I have to sit down. Um, not a good time for me. Thank God I had certain people around me who were decent. So Pete Jobson out of I Am Clute was really supportive um, throughout it all. Uh, Guy was really supportive out of Elboy. He was really good. Um, just people who understood that life is more important than a number one it, even though we got a number one it. 
And it's, it's a, one of the most beautiful love letters I've ever heard. Thank you, that's really nice. No, genuinely. And I mean, look, we're the same age, right, ish. And, and we're the same, I'm not from Manchester, but my, my heart is there, always has been. It's the most beautiful northern city yeah. of all. And, and so everything you talk about, everything, and the power of that man, for all his faults, yeah. It was huge. And he had faults. Let's not, let's not forget that. I remember doing a thing with Paul Morley and everyone was on stage talking about Tony Wilson, about how great he was. And I'd had a couple of pints and Peter Saville was there. And I said, hold on a minute, let's, let's not forget Tony could be a knobhead. <laughs> and the audience just went wild. And it was good because in the, in the uh, Observer the next day, Kitty Empire said... Um, a night with Tony Wilson could have turned into the lionisation of Tony Wilson till Mike Gary got on stage and called him a knobhead. <laughs> because he just needed grounded. But he was, but he was the, he total the first to admit it total as well. Total knobhead. Um, but important. You've got to be a knobhead to achieve great things. Yeah, You've got to make yourself look like a dick sometimes, you know yeah. what I mean? Look at Galileo and people who've made big claims which have turned out to be true. At one point they were locked up for being insane. Totally. Um, You've got to make grand claims. You've got to, um, you've got to believe in your voice. You've got to believe in your, in your ideas and what you think and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, it was a bad time for me in some ways. You're okay now, though. I'm okay now. I still feel the effects of the stroke. Still get tired quite quickly. Um, I still bruise dead easily. I can't somersault like I used to. <laughs> um, Did that? Did that, and we'll finish off because we've gone on a long time, and I really appreciate your time. Did that? Was there a half life, a, a kind of shadow memory of of caring for your dad that, that that emerged during that incident? Did that? Was there anything left over from that that hadn't that outpouring that hadn't happened? What do you mean? Well, did you? I mean, obviously, your dad had a stroke. Obviously, that there's there's that similarity there, but. Was there some kind of fear of being the burden that he was? And I say burden, I don't necessarily mean it as a heavy thing, but yeah. the care that you had to give him, did you feel some fear that that was coming your way from your kids? No, because um, stroke treatment these days is totally different. My dad was stuck in an old people's unit for six months and never given physio. And they didn't know that about stroke then. Now, for the likes of the Stroke Association and healthcare generally, their approach to stroke is totally different. I remember Dr. Gamble, that was my stroke doctor, um, coming up to me after I'd had the stroke and talking to me. And I didn't believe I'd had a stroke. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, I've not had a stroke. Don't be stupid. I just, I'm just not well. And then he brought a mirror up to me and showed me my face and it was all down one side. And it's a, a long-lasting image of my dad. I had. I remember seeing him as a really fit man throwing me above his head in Bellevue, uh, Bellevue Park, Bellevue Zoo. And then next time I saw him, this guy with a slidey face down one side, and it was it, it, it was quite a powerful thing for a five year old kid. Now, when this doctor brought this up to me and showed me the same, it's it sent reverberations through. That's what I meant. That's that sent, shadow. It sent reverberations through, but at the same time, I was a lot luckier. I was a lot fitter. And the doctor also said to me, "Look around the ward." There's no fat people that have died. That have died. Oh, fuck, that's powerful. So, so he goes, you're fit, aren't you? You do sport. You do, and he goes, that's why you're alive now, because otherwise you'd have been dead. You had a ma- massive double block to your brain. Um, so he goes, 
And then I remember this, the second meeting afterwards, he had five students there. And he says, I want you to take Mr. Gary into a room and talk to him about all elements of this because the recovery of this man, I've not seen anything like it because he recovered really quickly. Um, so a group of students just brought me into a room and fired questions at me about alcohol abuse, cannabis abuse, drug abuse, cigarettes, what I was doing, how I was living my life. But I changed my life and I had to change my life. I'd start meditating, I'd start losing stress. I'd stopped drinking and smoking, which I started doing again recently. Um, a lot better, obviously. Um, but I had to change my life and I changed my life and I'm a lot more aware of tiredness physical tiredness not doing too much and leaving on good time for trains planes and automobiles so some stress, stress out. not getting the stress as well so yeah and also I think I think when you have something happen to you like that at what is a young age I was about 48 when it happened 49 um, it makes you really address things and makes you look at life in a different way um, and also me being the artist, it's great inspiration for poetry. <laughs> yeah, tragic things are great inspirations, aren't they? You know, um, broken hearts, broken bones, broken minds. Um, they all feed into the uh, po poetic cooking pot. That's the thing about poets, we'll feed off anything. Anything that's happened, you look to it and you look to take something out of it. Even, the, even missing my son, even the loss of my mother, even all these things, you've got to bring it into into what you're doing because that's what I do ultimately ultimately I'm telling the story of my life on stage in but lots of ways but in the specific lies the universal yeah exactly and that's it that's it more than anything else I'm at, I'm at, I'm talking about something that a hundred other people have experienced in the audience but they've never put words to it do you know what Mike I, from my, when my daughter got my daughter got married two weeks ago in New York and I was jet lagged and I was and I had to do a speech but it wasn't a proper wedding so I didn't know when I was going to do this speech and I'm good with words, but I'm, I'm, I hide that sometimes and think I'm good with speaking them. I'm actually good with writing them. And, and I sat and wrote this, this speech, this monologue, and I'm in tears. It's like three in the morning, two in the morning. I'm crying my heart out in bed. And I finished it, and I felt loads better, and then I couldn't give it the next day because it was all a bit stressful. Did you lift your bike in? No. You left it outside? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm It's all right. Did you lock it? Yeah, it's all locked. Yeah, right. we're all good. We're not in Moss Side now, right? <laughs> so I wrote this thing, and 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 then I said it, and everyone was in tears because it was it was beautifully written. I, I'm not blowing my own trumpet, but I can write. And then I thought twice about putting it on Instagram. Instagram's my preferred. I don't do Twitter often. I mainly do Instagram. Fuck me. I mean, lots of likes because it's Daisy's wedding. The messages that I got. The messages that you know it's your story but it hurt me it's yeah. your story but it made me think and and Mike you know I sit at the back of that I stand I never sit for your performances I stand at the back of that tent I'm smiling through tears I'm laughing and, and feeling sad I'm I'm, I'm 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 mourning the troubles I've had with my kids through your words with a smile on my face I've never been happier to be sadder Mm. Thank you for that. Never been happier to be sadder. That's a great line. Let's finish with that. You're brilliant. Thank you. Thank mate. you. Fuck it. <clears throat> wow. I, I mean, I guess you can tell how how enjoyable and fun that was. It wasn't. It wasn't hard. It wasn't arduous. It, we didn't struggle for conversation. Dog squeaking a toy. Sorry about that. Um, utterly lovely man and really enjoyable conversation. Um, if you've got any questions, I mean, you can see Mikey. He he. he 
performs. He he is um, in demand at a whole load of events around the UK. Um, and what I loved about him is the time he spends in schools, and he he works for a tenth of his charge out rate when he's in a school. And uh, I just love that. I really do. Um, and if if all else fails, you'll always find him at, at the Good Life Experience every September. So um, thank you for listening. Um, and if you've got anybody that you think I should talk to, let me know. Um, if you've got any comments, bad, good, indifferent, then um, you wouldn't have an indifferent comment, though, would you? If you have a bad or a good comment, um, yeah, let me know. Drop me an email at mark at thisisape.co.uk. And whatever you're doing, have an amazing day. Thank you.